going to be in the book of Titus. Titus, a small three-chapter epistle written by the Apostle Paul. We're going to jump into that for a few weeks here. I'm not quite sure how long it's going to take us to get through, but we're going to wring every bit of juice out of it. Amen? So as you're getting to Titus, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1. Just a moment. Let's thank God for the word tonight. Look good out there, studious, turning pages, not copying off your neighbor. Father, we just thank you tonight for the word. We thank you that we can come and worship as we did, Father, and I pray as we worshiped, you prepared our hearts tonight. You plowed up the hard ground and you got the soil ready and you made it ready for the seed of your word tonight. Father, as we explore and enjoy Titus together, I pray Lord God, that you would fill us with all the good gems and hidden pearls and wisdom that is tucked away in your word for those who seek you with their whole heart. Father, it's not the casual seeker. Even you told us not to cast our pearls before swine. But Father, we prepare our hearts and we call to mind areas of our life that need redemption and sins that need to be forgiven. And we ask that you'd purify us by the blood of Jesus. Open our ears tonight that we'd be able to hear. Open our eyes that we'd be able to see and do it with the word. We ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sword gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Let's just stop right there because that was a whole lot of stuff. And we're going to take a look at the book of Titus. The first thing I want you to know about it is that the apostle Paul wrote it. He identifies himself as the author and he writes it uh, this three-chapter epistle. It's short. It's powerful. It's a, it's a quick letter, but at the same time, he writes it to his spiritual son and co-labor, Titus. And I want you to understand very clearly, this is instructive to Titus because Titus is left behind in Crete. He's dealing with Cretans. I don't know what you've heard about them, but they've gotten themselves a reputation. And Titus, Paul's spiritual son, equipped for the ministry, Paul is giving him theological firepower to to just set things in order in the church. So Titus ministered alongside Paul during some of his missionary journeys, as well as provided support for Paul during his time under Roman house arrest. So Titus is not just some kind of fly-by-night guy. He's a guy who's always been there. He's one of those people you can count on. Anybody ever meet someone like that? Someone you, come on, someone you can count on, someone you can rely on. Someone who's always by your side, always in your corner. Titus was that guy. Titus worked in Crete, as I mentioned, and Paul assigned him to do some long-term work there. So understand, if you got a place that's a mess and you got people that are out of control, you don't put a novice there. You put someone solid. And that's 
Just the very fact that, you know, Paul puts him in Crete here uh, shows that he has a lot of confidence in him. He, he knows what he's made of spiritually. Uh, he's assigned him to do some long-term work in that region to establish the early churches there. So very important work Titus is given. Not a novice, not a fly-by-night guy, a pillar, someone that Paul has come to rely on. The themes found in Titus are typical of this period in the early church and early church history. He's going to touch on matters of faith. He's going to touch on matters of conduct. He's going to talk about false teachers. How many know that that's a theme we're always hearing about, dealing with the false? And you might think, Pastor, you know, our Christian doctrine's been solid for 2,000 years. There are people all over the place, in all kinds of different venues, behind pulpits, on TV, calling themselves Christian, teaching things that are not biblical. So the false teacher theme is not a wasted theme on us. It's very relevant to our culture. And as Christians, we should be sound enough in uh, the apostles' doctrine and in the doctrines of the Bible that we should be able to spot false teaching a mile away. In fact, you're, you're going to even see there's, there's, there's some cues and precursors, even uh, attitudes and characteristics about them that the Word describes over and over again for the reason that we should be smart enough to be able to spot it. There's some people, before they even say a word, your spirit should be a little suspicious of what's going on. And if you're not spiritually sharp enough to do that, the Holy Spirit wants to bring you to that place. Why? To protect the gift of God that's in, in you to protect the great gift of salvation that's been afforded you, amen? Look, this was life or death back then. They didn't have scholars to go to. They didn't have Bible teachers in colleges. The church was in a fledgling state. If someone came in and deceived the people, he could literally just, you know, snatch away their faith, and the enemy wasn't playing with the false teacher. He was trying to destroy the church. So Titus is there as a pillar, as a rock, you're going to hear about matters of faith, conduct, dealing with false teachers, and uh, all of this stuff is relevant then, and it's relevant now. Also covered in this epistle is the scope of Titus's specific call and station, and we're going to talk a lot tonight about the calls and the characteristics of leadership as laid out in this book. You're going to see that Paul is preparing Titus for fruitful ministry in the church after his departure. See, Paul knows in all that he's doing and all that he's going through that he's going to not be there forever. He understood that those chains that he wore and his date to be in Rome and all of these people he had to see, he understood at this point that it was going to end in his martyrdom. What a sobering thing to know that I'm going to be offered, I'm going to be pour out, poured out as an offering for the gospel's sake. Yet Paul never gets an attitude. He never says, woe is me. He embraces all of it with faith, and he's faithful to the end in raising up the next generation. Paul could have said, man, this is a ripoff. Look at this, all the stuff I've done in all the churches, and I'm going to be you know, martyred, and now these guys are going to run it. You know, It's almost like it's easy for the older ones to get an attitude towards the next generation. Come on. Don't look so holy out there, you know, when you're looking at them. Oh, man, kids, well, we never did that when we were kids. Man, if I talk to my parents like that, come on. Some of you have said that over and over again, right? You know, we didn't have this and we didn't have that. And, you know, th this generation and their music stinks. It just stinks. There's no way around it. <laughs> See, I'm stirring it up here. I'm stirring the pot. So Paul never had an attitude like that. He was faithful to stir up the, you know, the next generation and equip them. He wasn't looking at them like, you guys are never going to be me. No, he's like, I want to prepare you, Titus, to do fruitful ministry in my absence. Look, none of us are going to be here forever. I'm not going to be here forever. I'm thinking about who, who I'm going to raise up, who I'm going to pour myself into so when I make my exit, the, the baton can be passed and the gospel can continue. So Paul is doing that. Now, the outline of Titus breaks down neatly into uh, five points. I'm going to give them to you rapidly. You don't, you don't have to write them down. We're going to go through piece by piece. But just so you see a scope of the book quickly. First, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 that we're covering tonight are qualifications for elders. Uh, then we're going to talk about the concerns of false teachers in verses 10 through 16. Then we're going to head to chapter 2 and talk about the roles of young and old, male and female. How many realize God has specific roles for men and women? 
We're created equal but different. And so we're going to talk about the roles of young and old, male and female. Then general conduct for believers is going to be chapter 3, 1 through 8. Chapter 3, 9 through 15 will teach us how to respond to spiritual error. So there it is. It's quick. It's compact. It's to the point. I love books like that. If you can't get to the point, don't go on the journey. Verse 1 through 3 starts off, you know, by Paul identifying himself as the author of the book, and that's good. You know, as in Hebrews, the author wasn't identified, and there's some speculation about it. But here's a book where we know exactly who wrote it. It was Paul. And look, Paul identifies himself as a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Right in the intro, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You might say, well, who cares, Pastor? Let's move on to the meat here. There's meat here. But, you're, you know, if we, if we gloss over that, we're missing something. Whatever titles you have, whatever degrees you have, whatever station you have in life, realize something. You need to first be a servant before you're anything else. Uh, there wasn't enough amens on that. Let me try this side of the church here. Whatever degrees, whatever title, whatever station, no matter how much money you have in the bank, no matter how successful you are, what you have to be first is a servant. Paul said, I'm a bond servant, amen, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Be careful of the people who want to tell you all about their titles first, and they can't pronounce the word servant. You know, they say it like servant or something like that. You know, they put the French spin on it. No, we are servants first. Oh, pastor, it must be good to be the pastor. You can do whatever you want. Ah. The higher you go up the food chain, the shorter the leash is on you. And the higher you go up in service, the more people you have to serve. And God puts a demand on leaders. They will be judged more strictly, and they will give an account for what they did for the people that they were supposed to serve. So understand something here. Paul has got it exactly right. He's a servant first, and then he's an apostle. He's a bondservant, which means he's committed to Jesus for life, and, and he has a slave mentality that he serves his master without, you know, without any kind of, you know, oh, well, Lord, I don't want to do this, or, you know, can, I, can we change this? Or No, he is totally committed, and that's something that we need to learn in the church, amen, to serve God without question, to not pick and choose what we want to do or like to do. Come on, Wednesday night, you're fading on me already. We haven't even got past verse one. So here we go. Paul, he knows he's a servant. He says he's an apostle, and boy, is he ever an apostle. The greatest apostle who ever lived wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Verse two reminds us that salvation is, is a promised gift of God. So salvation comes from God, in verse 2, to the eternal hope of eternal life, to the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised. Now that's important. Why? Because if our salvation was built on anything else besides the fact that God, who cannot lie, promised it to us, then it would be built on shaky ground. The very fact that our salvation comes from God and that it's, and that it's a free gift and that it's built on his character and, and his faithfulness should be very comforting to all of us. If our salvation was built on a denomination, they split. If it's built on men or women, they flake out. I don't know how many people I've seen just come unglued. Man, thank God our salvation is not built on a church or a denomination or a doctrine or a person. I... I, I I was friends with someone who was in the Lutheran church, and all the person would do is talk about Luther, Luther, Luther. And I know Luther from church history, and he did some great things too. But listen, Luther didn't die on the cross to save us. This guy never talked about Jesus. It's not about being a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Charismaniac or a Pentecostal. Some of them still didn't laugh. It's about being a child of God and a servant of his, and our salvation is built on his faithfulness. Verse 3 brings out the fact that the gospel that made salvation possible has been revealed to man in God's perfect timing. That's, this is interesting here, verse 3. But at the proper time, say proper. At the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation which was 
which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Think about that. The, the, the gospel came to the nations, came to the people, first through the Jews and then to the Gentiles at the proper time. But there was a whole lot of human history before the gospel came, before the cross, before Jesus died, before he rose from the dead. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that there was a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of Old Testament before the New Testament, isn't there? We talked about the old covenant and how it didn't have much grace in it, and it was hard. You crossed certain lines, and God would, you know, as the old King James says, smite you. There's people who did stuff. I mean, remember the priest who touched the ark when it was shaken? What? He got smoked. And we don't even stop and think about that, how much grace we enjoy. Look, the only reason all of us are not little greasy spots on the carpet for walking into God's presence is because of grace. And we should never, ever forget it. Sometimes we have a good streak and we put two or three days together and we think, man, I'm pretty good lately. I'm putting the H in holy right now. Be careful. It's grace. And the gospel came in God's perfect timing. Did you ever wonder why God waited so long to institute the new and better covenant to send Jesus? I mean, think about what they went through in the old covenant. God, why did you wait so long? Did you ever stop and think about in the other generations under the other covenants, how much harder it was to approach God and to deal with your sin? Do you realize how blessed we are to live now under the new covenant that the veil has been torn in two, that the blood of Jesus is upon us, that salvation is not on by works, it's not about keeping commandments, it's not about the law, it's about grace? God says in his perfect, proper timing, it happened. So we have to trust him and we have to be thankful that we are enjoying the fruits of God's perfect timing. Paul mentions in uh, verse 4 here that he finally brings Titus into the equation, the book that bears his name. He says, to Titus. So Paul's writing. He's a servant of God. He's an apostle. He's writing to Titus. And look what he says. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So by first, verse 4 of chapter 1, Titus is mentioned, and now Paul is speaking to him. He's giving all three chapters of this epistle to him as instruction. Paul very clearly sees Titus as a spiritual son. This is important to understand. Paul not only did his thing and fulfilled his call, but those around him were being mentored by his anointing, and he sees Titus as someone who is a spiritual son to him, a man of true faith. Now, that's, that's quite a... That's quite an accolade to receive from the Apostle Paul. He was hardcore. Remember John Mark abandoned them on the missionary journey, and he wanted nothing to do with them. He cut them off. He, Paul was a serious guy. And here he says about Titus that, you know, he's a godly man. He's a man of faith. He's basically putting his stamp of approval on him. He's calling him a spiritual son. This is big. He sees him as a co-laborer. Uh, who is equally called to the ministry. So quite an affirmation of Titus in verse 4 here. Producing spiritual offspring is something that Paul did. You know Timothy. You got Titus. You got all these guys that were around him. Paul planted churches, and he raised up leaders, and he raised up spiritual sons. You might think, well, yeah, he's the apostle Paul, so he does things like that. You and I need to spiritually reproduce as well. Oh, no, no, Pastor, that's just for you. You raise somebody up, we'll watch, and we'll clap when you get the right person. No, 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 no. You and I have to spiritually reproduce. If we are mature Christians, we should be reproducing ourselves. We should be mentoring somebody. We should be encouraging somebody. We should be bringing to people to church and watching them getting saved. We, should, we got some seats here. There, put some butts in them for me. I'll preach to them. Come on. I'm, that's what I'm seeing, just mirroring it back. So... Paul reproduced himself spiritually, and that was the natural byproduct of his ministry. 
Godly leaders always reproduce themselves spiritually. It's just the way that things go. But Paul particularly saw an urgency to sow into the next generation. And like I said, we're not going to be here forever. But, you know, some of these young people out here, they're going to have to carry the torch, carry the baton. So we better be investing in them. Don't ever look at young people as, you know, well, they're not important. You know, they're, no, they are the future of the church. Paul is pouring into Titus, and it's a good thing for us to understand. Now, verses 5 through 9 list the biblical qualifications of leadership in the church. Not anyone who wants to be a leader gets to be a leader in the kingdom of God. You have to be called, and you have to be equipped, and you have to be anointed. So here are some qualifications for biblical leadership in verses 5 through 9. It says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So I want to just take a look at that. You know, those in positions of leadership in the church uh, are categorically referred to as elders. Now, that that call as an elder can be seen in uh, a pastor is the chief elder. You have elders that serve in uh, guiding and shaping the 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 flow of the church, protecting the pastor, holding his hands up. You have deacons. You have all these things that were structured in the early church. But here, they're using that word elders, and categorically, that's describing leadership in the church. Is a missionary an elder? Quite possibly be. An evangelist an elder? Absolutely. So it's speaking of spiritual maturity and, and an answer to a calling. Now, Paul lists some qualifications for those who would serve in such a position. And... Uh, This was important then, it's important now, and here's why. The best way to keep false teachers and novices and wolves out of the church is to vet them before they get in positions of leadership. That was worth driving out here for tonight. And I'll tell you something, if you've ever worked in a company where you have leaders that are in positions of authority, that don't have integrity, that misuse people, that that are detrimental to the work atmosphere, they create a toxic environment. If you've ever worked for a manager like that, you know, you know, there's times where you're like, how did this person get get this job? Come on, America, I know I work in the same place as you did. I did a lot of things before I got here. I worked at a kennel and Separated the brown snow from the yellow snow and made executive decisions. God was preparing me for ministry. I had a lot of jobs. In fact, you know, if I went on about the jobs that I had, you know, these, uh, you look at people in positions and you're like, oh my goodness, how in the world? And the thing is, why do false teachers get in there? Why do merchandisers get in there? Why do people who misuse money get in there? Why do people who are sexually immoral get in those positions? Because they're not vetted through the list that we're going to cover tonight to get them, you know, out of the way before they ever get a position of control or authority. So this stuff is important. You know, there are people who deceive and fleece the sheep and weaken the church And we need to screen them out before they get in those spots. Now, the epistles talk extensively about the marks of false teachers and troublemakers in the church. And we've covered a lot of those books, and I've spent a lot of time detailing that. But here we're looking at the other side of the proverbial coin in a description of what a godly leader looks like. And that's what Paul is doing here in Titus. So let's just take a look at what he's doing. Number Number one, I want to talk about verse five here. Two marks of those who are called to serve as elders. The first, as you're looking at number five here, I encourage you to have your Bibles out. We're going to move at some speed. Uh, One of the two marks that we're going to look at in verse five is this. Elders are skilled at establishing order in the church. Look what it says. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I direct you. So the first thing that an elder, a spiritual leader needs to be able to do is create order in the church. And that's very important. Sometimes all it takes is a strong anointing uh, on a person and things begin to fall into order. When someone is in a position that they are not anointed for, people do not submit to them. Listen to me, I've been in full-time ministry for almost 30 years, and let me tell you something, without the anointing, your charisma won't do it, your intellect won't do it, your forcefulness will not do it. 
So the anointing here in an elder is what establishes order in the church. How many know we need order in the church? If you've been, ever been to a church that's out of order, you know nothing works right. So trying to bring order to a church and not being called and equipped to do it is an exercise in futility. Getting to people to fall in line spiritually can be a lot like herding cats. Smile, it's good for your face. Gets rid of wrinkles. If you've ever tried to herd cats, I don't know why you would do that. But it takes an anointing. Those who are anointed and called as elders to leadership have a skill to bring order to the church. Number two, they can recognize and appoint solid leadership. What does Paul, excuse me, what does Paul tell Titus here? That I want you to appoint elders, you know, and God's going to help you, and I'm going to help you, but you need to be able to do that. See, a, a, a good leader, someone who has an elder anointing, someone who is spiritually mature, can spot people who have unique giftings, amen? Some of the most powerful men of God I've ever been around and worked with, they could spot someone's anointing, spot someone's gifting. I mean, they, they could spot it in the congregation. They can just look, oh, yeah, there, there's, there's one right there. There's a Bible teacher. Oh, oh, there's one right there called to preach the gospel. And, you know, when you have that anointing, it's part of it that you, what you can raise up leaders. See, there's a problem when you have people in leadership who want to be the whole show. Oh, it's just me and I don't need any help and you just watch and clap. No, that's not the way the body of Christ works. You need to raise up people. You need to be able to spot people's anointing, activate their gifts, and put them in service, amen? This is not a spectator sport. Some people look nervous now. He's going to give me a job. So elders have that ability. They could bring order, and they could spot leaders, and they, they, they could mentor them, and they could plug them in to fruitful ministry in the church. The next four verses after verse 5 here are basically a list. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list given here that's a good screening list for potential leadership. The list break down, it breaks down specific qualifications that are needed to serve as an elder or a leader in the local body. Number one, first one is they must be above reproach. And I'm going to move through these fairly quick because there's 10 of them. So what does that mean that a person must be above reproach? If someone's going to be in leadership in the church, if they're going to be in pastoral ministry, if they're going to be in lay ministry, if they're going to be an elder or a deacon, if they're going to serve in any capacity, they need to be above reproach. What does that mean? That they don't have questionable morality. This is so important. You know, a track record of solid morality. That There's no hint of immorality. They're not sketchy in their business practices. Come on, I'm preaching now. There are some churches, if you have money, well, we'll put you in leadership. We'll give you a title. We'll give you a five-by-seven diploma suitable for framing. I've been around the block. I've seen a lot of things, and I've seen people lay hands on those suddenly because they had money. That's wrong, and that hurts the church. So they have to be above reproach, not sketchy in their business practices. They, they, they can't be tied to corrupt individuals. I think Pastor Rick's in the mafia. You know what I'm saying? If you got sketchy connections, it's amazing. And we've seen this throughout church history, even in America. Someone with a big name gets saved, and the next thing you know, they're a pastor. And, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but those things never, ever worked. They're not pastors now. I'm not even sure some of them are Christians now. So they must be above reproach. They must have a good reputation. Uh, they, they, they must be, you know, Christian in what they do. You know, not that people look at them and that guy, that guy ripped me off. Or that guy, he was inappropriate with my wife. That guy, I knew him in high school. I mean, listen to me, we all change. But if we've changed, then we need to have that kind of reputation to be in leadership. So above reproach, number one. Number two, this one's interesting. They must be the husband of one wife. The ladies are laughing. Ha <laughs> ha, one wife, I'll one wife you. Apparently... Polygamy was common in the early church. And 
One thing that disqualified someone from being in ministry right out of the box was if they had multiple wives. It's quiet now. Didn't say they couldn't be a Christian, didn't say they couldn't be saved. There were some cultural things there that uh, weren't confronted correct, you know, right away. But if you're going to be in leadership, you have to be the husband of one wife. Now, I want to some, say some things about this. It's very clear in Scripture that elders must be men. And we've gotten some sketchy uh, things going on in the body of Christ now. You know, there are certain positions that God said only a man should do. Women can preach, they can teach, they can prophesy, they can serve. But when it comes to leadership and pastoral ministry and being an elder, there is not one single example in the Bible of a woman serving in that position. Every application of it that you see is cultural. It is not biblical. And that's why we don't do it here. Elders are men. You got to be the husband of one wife. Pastors are men. They have to have the ability to minister to the congregation. Could you imagine? The head of woman is man. I'm the head of my wife. If Kim was the pastor, how would that work out for me? It's quiet now because you've probably swallowed a lot of garbage theology from what you've seen out there. But let's just stick to what the Bible says here. Elders have to be the husband of one wife. They have to be men. There is no example of any church I know of that makes women elders. So, you know, let's hope that we can stay on track here because I'll tell you something. When we exit what the Bible says and start doing what our culture says, it's not long after that that we throw out the Holy Ghost and we throw out Jesus and we become a social club. And let me tell you something. If you don't like it, argue with God. God never said a woman could do it. My wife would probably be a better pastor than me. She has much more compassion. I'll kill you if I'm in a bad mood. She's like, oh, you know. Look, I'm kidding. Some of you look serious. But understand something. God never said that someone can't do it. He just said this is the order. This is the structure. Do you understand that? Are you getting me? Okay, so elders. Elders have to be men. They have to be the husband of one wife. They have to, you know, uh, have a good reputation. They have to be above reproach. Number three, their children should be believers. Now, this is, this is an interesting one, too. I've seen men of God in ministry, you know, have children, and then some of those children turn out to be hell on wheels. So is the word saying, well, if you have any problems with your kids and they have an attitude, well, you need to step down and you're no longer allowed to be in ministry. Now realize this is a list for pr prospective ministers. This is a list, you know, if you, you're, in, you're in ministry, you're in service, and you're having some problems, nobody's family is perfect. But if your family is a hot mess and your wife doesn't listen to you and you're always fighting and your kids are horrible and they're not serving God, maybe you should pass on ministry right now. Okay, are you getting this? And this is important. You know, these things seem so basic from, you know, a theological perspective as we unpack them from the word. But in the application, the churches have not applied these things and we've made a mess. So children should be believers. Now, some kids are always going to give you know, you a hard time at some point doesn't mean God doesn't have their hand on them. Remember, this was per, for prospective leaders. If you're looking to get into leadership and you feel a call on your life, your marriage should be in order. Your kids should be in order. Nobody's perfect. But if you got a big mess, it's probably not the right thing to jump into the ministry. Because let me tell you something. The ministry puts a magnifying glass on everything and puts pressure on everything. If you're having a hard time now when you get in, it's going to be worse, and the devil will get in there. Number four, they must have a solid spiritual reputation. No history of indecent behavior or rebellion. Every Christian has ups and downs in their spiritual walk, including leaders. You know, I've been around pastors for decades, and I've, I've heard what they go through and, and the problems they face. And many times I've sat with pastors and prayed with them and encouraged them and and to hear what they go through uh, in their own personal lives, in their marriages, with their kids, uh, it, it'll break your heart. But what we need to look for is not people who are perfect, but people who have a solid reputation, amen? No history of indecent behavior or rebellion or marital unfaithfulness. Every Christian has ups and downs. 
but because when a leader falls, the whole church is wounded and embarrassed, because when a leader falls, there's a ripple effect through the body of Christ, we can't put people in leadership who have sketchy character. And there again, if we would have implemented this, you know, I, I grew up in, in, uh, in, in a time in the church with Christian TV and all of some of these pastors that I could name names that fell in, into immorality. Do you realize how much that damaged the church? Do you realize there's still people who will bring up certain names and use it as an excuse not to be here and let God change their lives? So it's serious. Uh, people have to have solid reputations, a consistent track record of faithful Christian conduct. Number five, they must be above reproach in stewardship. What stewardship? Is that when you go to Stewart's and get yourself five blocks of ice cream? No, stewardship is being a faithful overseer or a caretaker of the things of God. Uh, I, I am a under shepherd, I have to be faithful to be a steward over the things of the kingdom of God in the full gospel center. That's my calling. That's what I'll be held accountable for. Now, if as a pastor, I just don't care about what's going on in the church and I don't care about people and all I want to do, you know, is preach once in a while and, you know, and, and there's problems. Well, I won't do any counseling. I've heard pastors, well, I don't do counseling. <laughs> yeah, you should, you'd be surprised what's out there. Some people leave and they come back. But, you know, you have to be faithful over all the things. I take everything in, in this fellowship, everything in this body very seriously. And we give it attention. Are we perfect? Do we miss things? Can we be everywhere at once? No, I'm working on my omnipresence, but I'm not there yet. But the point is we've got to take care of the things that are crucial to the health of the body of Christ. And that's stewardship. And that's what... The list is saying here, you got to be a good steward. A potential elder must have a heart to faithfully attend to the needs of the local church. You see, it's a heart issue. If you don't care about people, then you, you got no business being in leadership in the church. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you have a master's degree? Peter, are you a good businessman? Peter, do you look good in an expensive suit? No, he said, Peter, do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. See, the qualification was that you had a heart for the sheep. A good shepherd loves the sheep, amen? Maybe you don't have sheep. Maybe, maybe you know, it's a dog. Do you love your dog? You treat your dog right. We buy our dog toys. He gets more toys for Christmas than me sometimes. So you got to love the sheep. You got to have that right heart. You got to be a good steward. If you want to be in leadership, realize you're going, to have to, you're going to have to take care of things that sometimes are uncomfortable, weddings, funerals, uh, you know, counseling. All of these things are part of the scope of leadership, amen? You look totally shell-shocked out there. I'm going to go faster. Number six is that they can't be self-willed. That's an interesting uh, thing here. You know, Self-willed, what does that mean? That, you know, they don't submit to the Holy Spirit. They do their own thing. They have their own agenda. We don't need any more leaders doing their own thing in the body of Christ. We don't need any more leaders starting their own movement. Look, I told you, I, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to tell you the truth. We don't need pastors out there building their own brand or their own denomination. And you got one guy, and he's got 20 campuses, and all these people he's never met, and he can't minister to them all, but it's an ego thing. that I have a church of 30,000 or whatever. How in the world can you pastor 30,000 people? The megachurch model has been destructive to the spiritual health of our nation. Oh, but it's a big church. People, people, sometimes I've had people come and name drop whose church they go to. I go to so-and-so's church. You ever met them? Can you call him at 2 in the morning? Will he cry with you at the gravesite when you're... Come on. No. Oh, you're going to survive Wednesday night. So problems in the body here, and they're, and they're because we don't follow the biblical instruction here. But they can't be self-willed. They can't be doing their own thing. Uh, you know, what we need is leaders who have the heart of little Samuel. Do you remember little Samuel when, he, when the Lord was calling him? Finally, he knew it was the Lord. He said, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. 
That's what we need. Pray for leaders. Pray that God would raise up leaders that have that heart. God, whatever you say, I'll do. God, and I'll serve and I'll take care of these things. And I'm, I'm not worried about building my own thing or being a household name or building my own brand. Lord, I just want to please you. If we can get leadership like that in the body, we'll have revival in the church. So they can't be self, self-willed, strong-willed, however you want to look at that. Number seven, they can't be quick-tempered. Hotheads need not apply. Right? You've got to have patience for people. Do you ever notice people can be annoying sometimes? But if you have a quick fuse and you want to yell and scream, man, I, I've seen stuff. I'm telling you, I knew there's one pastor who used to fire people and flip their desks over and yell and scream. And Yeah. And I remember that I was hearing that story, and they, they were, like, telling it like it was a good thing. And I'm looking at the guy like, you clown. That's how Jesus is, impatient, impetuous, demanding, humiliating someone. Sad. But if you're a hothead, you need to get that head cooled down, or you're not fit for leadership. They can't be drunkards. It says what? That they can't overindulge in wine. Listen, being given to too much wine, drinking too much is a deal breaker. You need to be filled with the Holy Ghost, not filled with too much wine. So there again, if, if, if you have drinking issues, it's a deal breaker. They can't be bullies or brawlers or foul-mouthed. Look what it says. You can't be a brawler. The King James says you can't use filthy lucre. Could, could you imagine? You know, you got a shepherd that cusses like a sailor. Now, all of us use bad words sometimes. Let's not pretend, right? Uh, even you? Yeah. But listen, God's people have to have control over their mouths. You hit your thumb with a hammer and, and you let a few go, you work that out with Jesus. But if you use profanity like punctuation, you don't belong in leadership. Can't be a brawler. Could, could you imagine this? I don't know. There again, they're delivering this to the Cretans, you know, so they had character issues. But could you imagine that? If you had leadership or elders or pastors or whatever in the church that were physically abusive to people. So those are deal breakers. You can't be greedy. Now, this is so important here. Why? Because when you see a person who's greedy and has materialistic issues and they have they have a love of money. Look, most of us can spot that a mile away, can't we? And if you're around them for any length of time, you can, you can pick out a person who's greedy, who has m- money issues, materialistic. Look, we don't need any more pulpit peacocks with their $3,000 suits and, you know, the $1,000 shoes. Thank God that that's almost a thing of the past. You know, now they're wearing skinny jeans and ripped stuff, so I guess that's in style now. But be careful of people who are materialistic who are greedy, who always want to show off, oh, I got this and I got that and my little pocket scarf. I want to choke you with that pocket scarf. Because, because the stench of that makes the church look corrupt. You know what a lot of people are saying out there? Ah, the church is all about money. Look at those pastors and look at what they drive and look how big the house is. Look, now pastors can be blessed. And I'm blessed. I got a Toyota truck. Woo. And, you know, I'm not saying you can't be blessed. I'm not saying you can't have nice stuff. But when you want to strut around and, and make other people feel like they're less than you, look, if we would have just implemented th- this one point out of these 10, we would have saved ourselves a couple decades of the prosperity doctrine that shamed the church. And so it's all right here in Titus if we would just apply it. And unfortunately, the application of it, you know, was a little loose and it was a little fast and it produced some bad fruit but uh, can't be quick-tempered can't be drunkards can't be bullies brawlers or foul-mouthed they can't be greedy or materialistic or lovers of money but we can spot those things and we need to vet them out before they take control of the church because once you get that spirit in the church it's hard to get it out The last two verses here, verses 8 and 9, is a little shift of gears. Um, You know, we looked at a lot of, you know, things that you can't do, you shouldn't do, you can't have that characteristic. But as we finish up it here, it says, you know, 
they can't be uh, addicted to wine, pugnacious, fond of sword gain. Uh, but verse 8 says, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort with sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So the, the gear shift is this. We talk about things that, you know, you, you can't have as character traits or you can't have as issues if you want to be in leadership, if you want to be a pastor, an elder. But here are some things that you should do. Now, it says here they have to be hospitable. So there again, that goes back to a hard issue. If you don't like people, you probably shouldn't be a shepherd. If you don't like people, you probably shouldn't be an elder. Ah, oh, people, ah. Oh. You got to love people. Now, now, listen, everybody doesn't love people. There's, you know, there's one in every crowd. There's one in every family. But, you know, if you don't love people, that you know, find a good place in the church to serve where you, maybe you can, you know, stay away from people. Just plunge toilets or get behind a computer or mow the grass, whatever. But leadership on this level, they have to be hospitable. That means friendly, approachable, opening up your home to people, amen? Uh, they have to love what is good. So there again, it's a, it's a, it's a morality there. It's, a, you know, the right heart. They're not political in the sense where, well, you know, I'm going to overlook this or I'm going to ignore that or, you know, I'm not going to say this because it'll offend that. Listen, they, if that's you, you don't belong in leadership, if you've got to please everybody, you've got to love what's good, and you've got to preach what's good, and you've got to say the truth even if nobody wants to hear it. They've got to be self-controlled. Boy, that's a, oh, we just lost half of them, right? Self-control. The, the professors at the Bible college I went to, uh, when I talk to them and hear reports about what's going on in the schools these days, they say the students have no self-control said, you guys were fun, you could laugh, but you knew when to get serious. And you guys were serious about the Lord. They said, what we got coming into the Bible schools now, they are out of control, they're unbridled, they're in and out of immorality, they'll mess around with drugs. It's just a mess. You say, what's that all about? It's our culture. It's the generation. And you want to see the future of the nation, go look in the Bible schools and see wh what they're producing and what they have to work with. So there, self-control, uh, righteous, holy, and disciplined. So all of those things work together. They're broad characteristics, but they're characteristics that can be measured in a person's life. Uh, the, the do's are here in verse 9. There, there are a couple things that we should do. And, you know, many times we focus on the don'ts and the don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. You know what? I found out and I've heard this before. If we focus on doing the do's, we don't have time to do the don'ts. If we put our energy into doing the do's, listen, serving God is not for the faint of heart. And when you do it with all your heart, it, it's going to exhaust you, amen? And it's going to bless you. So if you do the do's, you don't have time for the don'ts. So it says, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So if we're busy doing the do's and being what God's called us to be, walking in our anointing and our calling, you know, we're going to be good. Hold fast to the faithful word, which has been taught. So this is what Paul is exhorting Titus to do. He's saying, Titus, the apostles' doctrine, the, the early teaching of the church, the things that came out of Jesus' mouth, do those things. Uh, I, I want to direct your attention uh, to the fact that it says that he had been taught. An elder is not self-made. They're produced through discipleship, through mentoring. Oh, no, leaders are born. Leaders are not born. Leaders are made. You don't get born a leader. You don't pop out a mom and go, I'm ready to take control. No, leaders are not born. Everyone I've heard say they're a born leader turned out not to be a leader. Leaders are made. Elders are made. People, ministers are made. I, I'm not self-made. The Holy Spirit's been working on me since I was a little boy. The people around me have been pouring into me since I was a little boy. Those men and women and my Bible school teachers, professors, pastors, all of them poured into me. My parents 
poured into me and restrained me and, and kept me from going off on tangents. So elders like leaders, well, they are leaders. They're not self-made. They're not self-anointed. They're not self-appointed. They weren't born that way. They're the byproduct of the Holy Spirit through years of mentoring and discipline. So the faithful word is not a new doctrine. It's not a new gospel. It's not the minister's particular twist on the gospel. It's the sound, solid, unchanging word of God. You see that? You got to hear me what I'm saying here. Don't faint on me now. This is important. Because people want to change the gospel, or they want to put their little spin on it, or they want to put their hook into it. But listen, the word tells us not to do that. We have to preach the faithful word. Oh, I need a gimmick. I need a hook. I need something to, you know, draw people. Don't do it. The faithful word. What's the faithful word? It's the word that was given to us by the early church, through the mouth of Jesus, through the apostles. It's the apostles' doctrine. It's unchanging. It doesn't need to be updated. It's not antiquated. It's still the power of God unto salvation, and we shouldn't mess with it. So it says that we hold firm to it. You know, what does that mean? That means holding firm means we exhort people with the word of God. What's going on here tonight? What's going on is I'm preaching the word, and it's going forth under the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's touching you, and it's exhorting you. It's building you up. It's strengthening you. It's giving you wisdom. It's canceling out false teaching and, and, and stubbornness and stupidity, and it's replacing it with truth. That's what the word does. That's why we've got to preach the word. So we hold fast, and that means we exhort people with the word of God. That's what a leader, that's what an elder does. They can take the Bible, and they can deliver it under the anointing, and it blesses and strengthens the people of God. Holding fast also means that we correct doctrinal error, and that's the last point of verse 9. It says, uh, with teaching so that he will be able both to exhort, we talked about that, So we preach the word, it builds people up. And to refute, say refute. To refute those who contradict. A faithful minister, an elder, a pastor has to be able to spot false doctrine, confront it, and undo it. If they're unwilling to do that, the leaven will get in the church and poison the sheep. So it's nine verses here in Titus as Paul starts off. He gives us the qualification for what leadership should be in the church. Uh, It it encourages us. It challenges us. We're going to shift gears out of verse 9. Again, we're going to talk about uh, the false teachers and some of the characteristics of them. But realize these first nine verses are very powerful. Every single one of us should study them, ingest them, and know them so that when we are being ministered to, maybe you move, maybe you go someplace, you're looking for a church, these things should be at the forefront of your heart as you figure out where the Holy Spirit wants to plant you. And I got to say that in New Yorkistan because everyone's fleeing with great haste. So if you go, make sure you find a godly place to put roots down in and make sure the qualifications of the leadership in that place meet Titus 1 through 9. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you tonight for these people who have good hearts and good ground and drink in the word tonight. Father, pour these things deep into every one of them, that it would never leave them and it would never depart them. Give them wisdom and discernment that they would be able to see what is holy and what is not, that they'd be able to see what is true and what is false. And God, that they would know that they are called and have an anointing and have a place in the body of Christ to serve. And Father, as they do it, would they seriously take inventory of their own lives and their own character and make adjustments where necessary? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Give them praise.